Um, first of all, I want to thank the Joint Air Leadership Team uh, for inviting me to speak to you about the sanctity of life. Um, and also thank you for the AV team for setting up the, the PowerPoint and the microphone. Um, Tim tells me that they can actually do a picture-in-picture picture and have March Madness, kind of the, uh, maybe the Virginia Tech Duke game, you know, or, or at least a, a ticker down at the bottom with the score. Um, so the sanctity of life, you know, very often this topic is, is framed in the context or, or related to, you know, the topic of abortion. You know, and, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you know, the, the topic has become very politicized. You know, the, the idea of sa sacredness of life, sanctity of life, you know, dignity of life. Um, and, you know, these, these phrases, they're thrown around, you know, very often, you know, in, in a very, like a cultural or a political context. Um, and, and it becomes very emotionally charged. And, and it's, that's understandable because we're dealing with life and death. You know, and, and we're also dealing with, you know, people, human beings that have no voice in and of themselves. They're, they're helpless, essentially. Um, and then, you know, more recently, over the past few years, you know, actually assisted suicide, you know, end-of-life issues have actually become a, a, um, kind of enwrapped in the idea of the sanctity of life. And I'm going to talk about these two topics in a little bit. Um, and you think about kind of assisted suicide, you know, end-of-life issues, you know, there are countries, you know, primarily in Europe, and then now there are, I think, five or six states here in the United States where assisted suicide is actually legal, and it's actually, in, in some ways, encouraged. Um, and, and so the proponents of assisted suicide, they talk about, you know, death with dignity. That's the phrase they use, death with dignity. And so, you know, what is dignity? You know, there's the dignity of life, there's sanctity of life, there's sacredness of life. You know, and I'm going to kind of talk about that, too, to kind of really flesh out, you know, what is the biblical definition or the biblical, biblical approach to the sanctity of life and the sacredness of life? Um, you know, I pray, and I, I certainly hope that, you know, none of you here, yourselves, close friends, family, you know, that, you know, you won't, you know, be faced with these situations, you know, where, you know, maybe a loved one, you know, or yourself, you know, might be considering an abortion, or facing kind of the end of life, or, or you know, psycho thoughts of, of suicide even. You know, you know, we don't want to come across, you know, and we want to avoid, or unfortunately we may have to, you know, confront those situations ourselves, but you know, what is the biblical kind of approach? And that's kind of what I'm gonna go into in a little bit. Um, with that, let's, let's actually um, dedicate this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you and we praise you because you are the all-sovereign God. You are the creator of everything on the earth, and that includes human life, each one of us individually, but also all of humanity. And also in your, in your transcendent power, you are still imminently involved in our own personal lives. You hold us valuable in your eyes. We just thank you and we praise you because of that. And we just ask that you be with us now as we go into your word and as we you know, consider, you know, the, the, the image of God in man, the sanctity of life, and how those concepts apply to our lives. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, you know, we, we very, like I said, you know, very often, you know, the sanctity of life, you know, the sacredness of life is, you know, dealing with really kind of heavy issues, heady issues, abortion, assisted suicide, end of life. But towards the end, and I also want you to kind of think a little bit more broadly, actually, you know, the image of God, the sanctity of life, or the sacredness of life, actually can 
be applicable to a little bit more kind of mundane situations, things that are a little bit kind of more common, you know, in our lives. Um, for example, Ronald Habermas, who's a, he's a professor of Christian education, he, he tells this story in, in one of his articles on the sanctity of life. He, he, he tells this story about how he was helping another seminary professor organize like the summer course for you know, graduate seminarians. And, and he had to go to the, the library and, and put these textbooks on reserve, you know, you know kind of store them away you know, and, and put them on the reserve shelf for the seminarians to go in and read. So he goes to the library, and the librarian, you know, is giving him roadblock after roadblock, saying, you know, no, 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 you can't do that. No, you know, why, why do you want to put these textbooks on hold? You know, it's like, and, and he says that everything he tried to do, you know, she was, he used the term sharply questioning or kind of like turning him away. And he's like, oh, okay, so he, so he leaves. The next day, he comes back to the library on a, on a separate business for, you know, for a separate issue, and he comes in you know, via a different entrance. And the, the librarian sees him from afar, and she goes up to him, and she says, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, you know, for how I behaved yesterday. And she says, you know what? I didn't realize you were a professor. I thought you were a student. And he was like, you know, he, he, at that moment, he's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, what difference does it make? You know, why, you know, why should it make a difference? So, you know, why should my, like, a professor status or a student status, you know, determine how you treat me, right? And, you know, as I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I've been in that situation before, where maybe I've treated somebody differently because I didn't know who they were. Or maybe you've been in that situation where somebody treated you differently because, you know, they thought differently of you, Right? And so he was saying, you know, he brought up the point that, you know, why does it embarrass us if you're coming from the perspective of the librarian? Or why does it offend you if you're like the professor, right? And the reason for that is because it violates the idea that, you know, we're all kind of equal. We all have this kind of sanctity or this sacredness or this value in our personhood. You know, certainly there is, you know, some differences in, like, authority. I mean, certainly people, you know, in authority, we should treat them with more respect and honor. But, you know, Individually, we all have a certain kind of equal value in the sight of God, and we should treat each other that way. So that's kind of a little bit more on kind of the mundane, kind of everyday, more common, you know, situation that we see. I, you know, even though the topic's on the sanctity of life, I chose that clip art about kind of the mirror image. Um, because, you know, the, the, the sanctity of life is a or it's based on the reflection of the image of God in man. And so, before I get into it, I, I was just going to read our, the, the, our Articles of Faith, um, the article that deals with the sanctity of life, and it will give us kind of the, the broad framework for my talk today. So it reads, We believe that all human life is sacred and created by God in His image. Human life is of inestimable worth in all its dimensions, including pre-born babies, the aged, the physically or mentally challenged, and every other stage or condition from conception through natural death. We are therefore called to defend, protect, and value all human life. So, today I'm gonna to be kind of framing the talk around three major topics, and we'll kind of go through those. First, we're gonna talk about the image of God, or in Latin, the imago Dei. Okay? So what does the Bible say about the image of God in man? You know, what is the image? Because that's the basis for the sanctity of life, the sacredness of life. 
And so that's the next part, the sacredness of life. You know, we'll talk on, the, there's going to be three major topics I'm going to talk about. You know, the sacredness of, of pre-born life, our pre-born babies, humans. We're going to talk about those that are um, special needs, those that are kind of physically or mentally or developmentally disabled. Um, and then we'll talk about kind of end-of-life issues. And then kind of wrapped up in those kind of topics, I want to talk about, well, how do we respond? You know, like I said, some of these topics are very kind of weighty, very heavy, and, and hopefully very rare. Or we, won't, um, we won't encounter them in our lives. Um, but how are we supposed to respond? And now I'm going to give you some, maybe some little bit more kind of practical kind of suggestions or, or, or um, ideas in, in how to respond. So let's look at the image of God in humanity. Now, the exact meaning of the image of God in humanity has been debated, and it's still a topic of debate and discussion. Um, and part of the problem is that the Bible does not fully describe or fully define what does it mean for people, for humans, to be created in the image of God. Um, let's open our Bibles, and, and thank you, Justin, for reading uh, Genesis chapter 1. Let's actually turn to those. Let's, look, um, let's kind of break down those two verses. Um, and that's because that's where we see the, the best kind of, or the most kind of, I get the best description of kind of the, the idea of the, the image of God. You know, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it describes the, the final creative act of God on the sixth day of creation. Right? And in the verses, you, I'll read them again, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And I'm going to pause there because we see two words, two English words that are being used, image and likeness. Now, in the Hebrew, there are actually two different words. Image is tselem, or, or selem, and likeness is demut. Those are the Hebrew words that are being used. Okay? The first one, selem, or, it signifies a physical copy, something that has a physical form or something that's visible to the naked eye. Um, that, that Hebrew word selem is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to actual idols, you know, that, that you know, like a, an idolater or a non-believer would make, would form out of wood, out of metal, or out of stone, something that has physical form. That was also being used as, or the, the word selim was being used to refer to those idols, right? So the idea is that this is the, the, the idol, it's something with a physical form that is worshipped because it represents like a, a, a deity or it's in lieu of a deity. The word selim, however, does not include like the spiritual or the moral aspects of, you know, the idea of an image. The word selim is used um, in two other places, uh, um, and we're going to get to those verses. It's in Genesis chapter 5, um, verse 3, and then Genesis 9, 6. Um, and we'll get to those two verses in just a little bit. The other English word is likeness, so it translates demut, and we see that in uh, Verse 26, right? And so demut actually has a wider range of meanings, much, much more than the word selim. And the, the word demut also includes, or in, in fact, it actually emphasizes the abstract representation. Not so much like a concrete form. It's more of the, that something represents something, you know. So the idea is that it's like an image. It's kind of like a, a reflection, something without a concrete form, but it represents it. 
You know, in a way, you can think of it kind of like an icon. You know, like the Apple icon. You know, that's not the Apple Corporation, but that represents the company. Right? And so, so the demut can also be both physical, but it's also the idea of an immaterial um, representation. And over the centuries, you know, even from the early kind of church fathers, they've debated, you know, is there a difference between the image and likeness? You know, selim and demut. But over the years and kind of throughout history, and most scholars now believe that those two terms are synonymous, that they're interchangeable, okay? that together they convey the sense that there's a close connection, there's a reflection, and that there's a, there's a reflection of God in man, and that there's this special connection between God and man. And, that, and this quality is, is unique to humans, right? Nowhere else in the creation account in, in, in Scripture is an animal or is any other part of creation described as being created in the image of God. Right? So this is unique to humans. Right? So that's kind of the first point. The second point is that there's actually a, a difference in singularity and plurality. Let's actually look at verse 26 and 27. Uh, yeah, let's look at 20. No, let's start with 26. It says, let us make man in our image. So that man is Adam. Right, where, where the word Adam comes from. And that's singular. I mean, we see that again in verse 27. It says, God created man. So Adam, Adam. And that's a singular word. Let's God, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So singular. Right? But then verse 27 continues. And it says, male and female, he created them. So now we see actually a transition. We see from the singular part, to actually a plural, plural, man and female. God created them. So there's a plural form. So that, that indicates that well, the, the image of God in man is both singular. It's, indivi it's for individual people, number one. It's also both men and women, number two. But it's also the, in, the entire humanity. You can think of like the corporate body of mankind is also created in the image of God. So that, that's another point I want to make is this, the idea of the singularity. So individual people, you, me, Justin, you know, Bill, you know, individual people, men and women. Right? Let's see. And the question arises is what happens to the image of God after the fall of man? After Adam's sin, what has happened to the image? And this has also been another topic of debate um, let's turn ahead and look at Genesis chapter 5. Let's turn a few uh, chapters over. Genesis chapter 5 lays out the, the genealogy of Adam. And we're going to look at the first three verses. And it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him, so Adam, singular, in the likeness, so that's demut, okay, in the likeness of God. And that's referring back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. This is before the fall. And then verse 2 continues. He says, he created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now verse 3 is our key verse. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son. Is in his own likeness. That's demut. And so according to his image, that's Selim. And named him Seth. So we see the idea that there's this image that's being carried forward from Adam to Seth. 
right? So this idea that the Selim and the Demut have not been lost, it has not been obliterated because of the sin of Adam, right? See, Adam is giving birth to, or he's, he's procreating, or he's, he's giving rise to Seth after the fall. Let's go ahead to actually Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. That will also kind of give us an idea of what's happening to the image of God in man after sin. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And so this is um, after the flood, and God is laying out kind of his, his covenant after the flood. Um, and this indicates, this shows that the special status that man, or when I say man, I'm men and women, of course, but that human beings have in the sight of God even after the fall, after Adam's sin. So this is chapter 9, verse 6. It says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Right? So here God affirms the status. He affirms the value and the sacredness of human life. Right? He says you know, that if you take the life of somebody your life will be held accountable because that person's life had value. That person had the image of God in himself. Right? So, and, and, and this has been used um, as in support of capital punishment, right? For the, as a penalty for murder, once again, because man is still in the image of God after Adam's sin. Let's skip ahead all the way to, to James, to the New Testament. James chapter 3, verse 9. And here, uh, James, in, in this kind of this section of, of his book, James is talking about the tongue, you know, you know the kind of the speech, you know, how, how do we use it? Um, and here he says in uh, verse 9, he says, with it, you know, referring to the tongue, to the speech, on one hand, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men, who have been made in the likeness of God. Okay. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing? That's not a question, but it's a statement. He says, but brothers, these things ought not to be so. Right? So he's saying, no, you cannot curse fellow human beings because they still have the image of God. They have value in and of themselves. So that's kind of another statement that, yes, there is still a, a special status that human beings have because they possess the image of God um, in them. All right. So the idea is that after the image of God, or after the fall, you know, the, the image of God might be distorted. Right? It's not completely lost. It's not terribly damaged, but it is somehow distorted in some way. And the idea is that through the process of sanctification, we're actually conforming ourselves to the perfect image of God. And that we find in Christ. You know, those two verses, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and Colossians 1.15, they both describe how Christ, who is the image of God. And then Colossians says, Christ is the image of God, of the, excuse me, is the image of the invisible God. And there's kind of three points that are kind of made out of that. The first is that Christ is the perfect image. He is the exact, uh, say exact representation. He's the, the manifestation, the true manifestation, like the true essence of God. Right? If you want to, um, yeah, let's go back to Genesis. Yeah, actually, let's go back to the Genesis chapter one. I'm sorry, I'm going to have you guys flip around a little bit. 
Genesis chapter 1. Because there's actually another point and a, a point of comparison that can be made. Those two verses in the New Testament, they describe how Christ is the image of God. Right? But if you look everywhere else in the, New, in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis 9, 6, uh, J- the James verse that we looked at, James 3, 9. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Whenever they refer to the image of God in man or the creation of it, there's always a preposition. Let's look at verse 26. It says, let us make man in our image. It says, according to our likeness. So there's the in and the according to. Right? There's always a preposition. Right? So the image of God in man, it's, we're made in the image. We do not, we're not the exact representation like Christ is. So there's, there's a difference. And the idea is that, that Christ is the standard. He's the perfect standard for what God looks like or what God is. Right. Let's then talk about, well, you know, what is the image? I mean, I've talked about, you know, what's the kind of the, the, kind of the theology of the image. And you may be wondering, well, what part of man, you know, is the image, or you know, what part of man, or what aspect of humanity do we find that image? And kind of throughout history, there's been kind of three major kind of views. There's what's called the structural or the substantive view. There's also the functional and then the relational. The structural view says that it's something inherently structural or you know, within the substance of man. That could be things like you know, our intellect. You know, most often, you know, kind of people who really favor that, that point of view, they'll say it's actually the most common trait that's argued for is like our mind, our intellect, our, our rational thought. Right? People say, or some others will say, oh, it's actually our, like a physical trait or like our ability to express emotion or something kind of more psychological. So something structural to man, um, you know, that, that thought actually goes all the way back to um, Philo of Alexandria. He was a Jewish philosopher that lived um, from 20 B.C. to A.D. 50. So very early, they were considering, you know, what is the image of God in man? Um, and he wrote that the image of God is related to the mind or to the rational part of man. But the problem with that argument or the problem with that view is, well, what about people who have, you know, issues with, like, physical disability, you know, intellectual disability, you know, developmental issues, or maybe somebody who's unconscious, right? They don't have rational thought anymore. You know, are they less, or is that image of God less in them? And you, we'd say, no, that, that's not the case. You know, we can't say that they have less of the image or that the image is corrupted or damaged in them, and in some way they're less human, no, we can't say that. Right? So that's kind of the structural view and kind of one of the issues with the structural view. Um, the second is the functional image. So the proponents of that will say, well, maybe it's not something inherent in man. You know, maybe it's not like our physical body or our intellectual thought or our kind of our mental abilities. And they'll say, well, it's actually something that humans do. It's our function. And, and so they'll say, well, they'll quote um, Genesis chapter 8, Verse, or sorry, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And they'll say, okay, we have 26 and 27, which describes the creation of man and women in the image of God. And then very quickly, verse 28, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So they'll say, okay, God has now given a commandment to mankind to rule over the earth. So they say, okay, you know, actually the image of God is actually more of a function. It's, it's, the, it's how man is supposed to rule and subdue the earth and exercise dominion over creation. Right? Or they'll say, okay, maybe it's that man is God's representative you know, in kind of the created world. But the problem with this is it doesn't quite fit with some of the other biblical references to the idea of the image and likeness, right? If we're kind of rulers or like representatives of God, then why does it make a difference that if, you know, if we murder somebody or if we curse somebody, you know, why, you know, where, you know is, is our value still in what we do, you know, in creation, you know, how we kind of rule or subdue? And also, that's, th those functions are talking about kind of more of mankind as a whole, you know, the corporate humanity. But what about individual people like you, like me, right? So those are kind of, that's one of the problems with the functional view. The relational view will say, oh, well, actually, human beings are just fundamentally relational beings, right? That there's a relationship between man and, or God and man, you know, man to each other, or men, uh, man to each other, or human beings, you know, to human beings, and also humanity to creation. You know, those are some, some relations that we're, every single person is involved in. So then they'll say, okay, let's look, they'll say, okay, that relational view is also based on verse 26, where it says, let us, and you know, the idea that there's, the, the three members of the Trinity are speaking there, that there's a relationship, a perfect relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost that then is modeled or that, that is found in the image of God. So this, this relational view. Um, and the problem, though, is then, once again, it's, the image of God is universal. It's found in every single person. Right? So how can... Somebody who completely denies the existence of God, who rejects God, how can that, and the person who refuses to have a relationship with God, how can that person still possess the image of God and still have kind of value as a human being? Right? So one solution that people have said is, okay, well, actually, the image is still fundamentally structural, and then the, the functional and the relations, so the function and the relations, those are more a consequence of the structure, okay? But what's probably a better answer is that, okay, well, what is the image of God? And I, this, I'm going to kind of summarize at least this portion. That the image of God in man is really related to the entirety of what makes humans humans or the human being a human being, right? You can't break it down. You can't distill it and just say, aha, you know, the image of God is just like our rational mind or our physical body. It's just the entirety you know, it's just everything that makes us humans. And that's, you know, our ability to kind of to rule over creation. It's our ability to re relate to each other, relate to God. But it's also everything kind of within our body, our physical traits, our, our intellect. Right? You can't distill it down to single things. The second thing is, well, the image of God is just universally present. You know, the, the Bible says, you know, it just created man, you know, Every single person, you know, once again, the individuals, but also the corporate kind of humanity, corporate mankind. So people do not possess it, you know, at varying levels. You can't say, oh, one person has less of the image. You know, one person has more. 
You know, it's just universal. It's equal. It's independent of things like race, ethnic group, you know, gender, age, you know, even like social economic status. You know, the image of God is present in every single person. So what is the image? What, excuse me. The image of God is not. Well, it's not related to you know any attributes, any like abilities, both physical abilities or kind of mental abilities talents, spiritual gifts. I mean, you can list a long line of things there. You know, that, you know, the image of God and the sanctity or the sacredness of life is not related to any of those things. Right? It's just the fact that we were created, created by God in the image of, in his image. Right? And then also, like I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the image of God is not lost. You know, it's not badly damaged. You know, is it damaged or distorted? Uh, I mean, I, you can, there may be some wiggle room there. But at least the image of God is not badly damaged. Because right? just being made in the image of God, it's a status that God has conferred on every single person. John Kilner uh, gives an analogy of the idea of this, the status that the image of God confers you know, upon man. And he, he describes like a Stradivarius violin. You know, a Stradivarius violin is like one of the most expensive, one of the most valuable violin, or uh, there's a few of them, I think. You know, some of the most valuable violins out there. Right? But, you know, if a, if a Stradivarius, and it, so that, just the fact that it's a Stradivarius confers on it, you know, a very high worth. It's, it's very valuable, right? If a Stradivarius becomes damaged, right, it, it's still a Stradivarius. It doesn't lose its name as a Stradivarius violin. It's just damaged. Right? And if a Stradivarius violin is damaged, you know, it doesn't damage the name of Stradivarius. Right? And, and if a Stradivarius violin is damaged, you know, there's, this, there's this reason or there's a kind of a purpose to restore it because it is a, a Stradivarius, because it's already of high worth, high value. You know, granted, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's, you just kind of get the general idea that there's value inherent in man that, can be that man can be damaged, but the inherent value, the creator, the, 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 the status of the creator does not become damaged. That the status actually is based on the creator and the creative act as well. So let's then think about, well, the sacredness of life. Let's kind of today's topic. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot of debate and discussion about, okay, what, what is the value? You know, and, and it's framed in terms like right to life. There's also right to death. You know, death with dignity. Um, and, and these terms are kind of thrown around and I wanted to um, kind of just lay out just kind of some ideas and, um, of kind of the, maybe just kind of to frame the discussion a little bit of the idea of sanctity, sacredness, and then also dignity. You know, very often you hear this death with dignity. I've said it a few times. And that's one of the big kind of buzz phrases for you know, proponents of, of assisted suicide. Now, um, very often sanctity and sacredness are used interchangeably, but there's one of um, an author who, who suggests that there's a slight difference. Uh, David Gushy um, 
kind of, um, he describes kind of the, the, or he breaks down the etymology, kind of, you know, looking at the kind of the Latin and kind of the various meanings of the word of sanctity, sacredness, and dignity. And he points out that, you know, sanctity, there is a, a, a moral quality to the idea of sanctity, right? There's purity, holiness, there's virtue, and, and we see the idea of, you know, when we talk about sanctify or sanctification, and also sanctity, they actually come from the same kind of Latin roots, sanctitas or sanctus. So when we think about sanctification, right, that's a process between both God and man. Right? And David Gushy says, well, you know, the slight difference is that sanctity is something that can be achieved by a person. That a person can actually do something to achieve this moral quality. On the other hand, he says, well, actually, sacredness is actually a special status that's actually ascribed or it's conferred on something or somebody by another authority or another power. And that's what we see, you know, in the Bible when it comes to, you know, the, the image of God or the sacredness of life, that God has conferred that status onto man. Right? The... the, the um, the adjective sacredness comes from the verb sacre. The sacre is to consecrate, to worship, to bless, or to make holy. You know, you think about, the, to, and it's also to dedicate something to like a deity, right? So something that's, something that's sacred is something that is, or something that is sacred, it's made sacred, you know, by some designation, by some other, you know, entity. He points out dignity, and he, David Gushy says, well, okay, dignity really is actually coming from kind of classical Greek and Roman philosophy, right? And he's, he says that you cannot trace the term or the, the concept of dignity to like biblical Christianity or to Judeo-Christian thought. He says dignity as it's being used now, it, it, it's... It, com it describes an, an idea of like honor or distinction or worth based on actually some elevated rank, right? That, you know, it's, it's the idea that, okay, humans outrank all other creatures so that way there's human dignity, right? But it does not carry the, the idea of some moral quality, like the idea of holiness, purity. And so that's why he doesn't like to use dignity, and I think I kind of agree with him. Um, but dignity, it's still a good, useful term. It's a, what's called a kind of a crossover term when we're like maybe speaking with like a non-Christian or an unbeliever. I mean, we can say, hey, yes, you know, we know what you're talking about when, we, when you're using the term dignity, but let me explain how dignity is different than the idea of sacredness or the sacredness of life or the sanctity of life. So it's still a, like a useful kind of crossover term. Now, let me propose a definition of the sacredness of life. And this is a blend from Gushy's um, definition and also um, our article of faith. So the definition of the sacredness of life, um, you can even just kind of put in a, a, um, a prefix there, or a, a pre preceding clause that because God has created man in his image, you know, God has consecrated all human beings to an elevated status and immeasurable value, right? So because God has, once again, because God created man in his image, because each person possesses the image, right? then God has then designated, he has dedicated, or he has formally declared 
And that's the idea of consecrated. God has formally declared each person to be sacred, right? And that all human beings have this elevated status. And there you can throw in the idea of, you know, dignity, you know, honor. And that then because of that status, we just have immeasurable value. We have, we have infinite worth in the sight of God. Right? And so, like I said, the basis of that declaration and the evidence of that, that status is just the fact that we're created, that we're created by God in his image, right? and that we have that presence of God, uh, the presence of the image in man. Now, there's three sub-points I'm going to make here, and you're going to kind of, that, that, that the sacredness, once again, it's universal, and it, it's in all circumstances of life. Right? Each and every person, once again, regardless of gender, race, ethnic group, nationality, ability, social economic status, you know, and also stage in life, you know, physical health. There's, there's no exceptions, you know, to this idea that we were sacred in, in, the, in the sight of God. The second sub-point is that the, the sacredness of life, it bridges, you know, it starts from conception of the newborn, or I'm sorry, pre-born, the, the, the fetus, all the way to natural death. And the third sub-point is then that this sacredness of life, then because God has declared us or he has formally dedicated each one of us to be sacred, then each person has a responsibility that we're actually accountable to God to, to revere. Right? Once again, the idea to revere is to hold something in high regard, to, to respect the, the sacredness of life. We're, we're responsible in a way, we're almost kind of commanded to care, to defend, and to protect all human life. So that's kind of my definition and kind of three subpoints of, of the sacredness of life. Let's then look at the idea of the preborn child. Um, and oh, I was just going to throw in, actually, for those who are in the Adult One Sunday School class taught by Mike on Monday, you're going you're gonna to hear some kind of common kind of things, actually. He, um, I'm borrowing from him, um, and I have to make sure I give him credit. Um, so, as he spoke, um, for those who are not in the Sunday School class, our Sunday School class is how does the Christian relate to the world, and he was talking about uh, how Christians are commanded to show compassion to different groups, um, and what he didn't speak, unfortunately, was the idea of the image of God. So, uh, so let's talk about the preborn children. And um, what is the secular view? Okay, well, the secular view says, well, you know, the child in the womb, is, it's not a human being. You know, it's a, it, they'll say, oh, you know, it's just a part of the woman. Right? And so that then, it, that leads to the idea of like pro-choice. You know, the woman can choose what to do, you know, with her body, right? And then, but then this line of reasoning then leads to a fairly extreme position that we've actually heard a little bit more about over the past few months, you know. Then it, it begins to say, okay, you know, if that baby is part of the woman, right, then, you know, the woman can do whatever she wants at any point in the pregnancy. You know, even after the point when, that, if the child is born prematurely, that child still can survive. But they'll say, no, that, that child is still part of the woman's body. And the woman can do whatever she wants. And over the past you know, few months, we've seen states that start talking about you know, late allowing what we call late term or late you know, abortions late in pregnancy. Or even partial birth abortions. 
you know, where the baby is partly delivered, but still kind of halfway within the woman, and they abort the baby. Right? It's like, that's infanticide. That's killing a baby. Right? So that's kind of one secular view. Kind of, and I, I couldn't think of a good term, but I'm, kind of hear me out with this one. It sounds kind of funny, but you know, the, the world will also the, will say, or they'll kind of come from the line of reasoning that the child is like a consumer product. And, and kind of hear me out. Um, two of the most common reasons for abortion are, one, that the, having a baby would dramatically change their life or the woman's life. And the second one is that they can't afford a baby now. And so it's kind of like if you've never had a car and you've, you, know, you just kind of you know, use public transit, you walked everywhere, and all of a sudden somebody gave you a car. And they're like, oh, you know, wait a minute. I mean, my life's going to change dramatically, but I can't afford the gas. I can't afford you know, the, the insurance. Right? It's like that's the idea of this kind of the consumer product. Um, also, you know, in the United States, about three-quarters of children with Down syndrome actually are aborted. Medical technology has, has reached the point where even just through a simple blood test, they can determine if the, the child actually has Down syndrome. And, and then it becomes very easy then for the, the parents or for the, the medical providers to talk to the family, say, oh, you know, your child has Down syndrome. Here's all the bad stuff that's going to happen. Here's all the challenges you're going to face. So in the United States, about almost 75% um, of pre-born children with Down syndrome are aborted. Um, in Europe, actually, some countries are actually above 90%. Actually, in Iceland, it's actually 100%, where there's this, this kind of this big push to actually abort all kids with, with Down syndrome. And kind of continuing the idea of like a, a consumer product, it's kind of like, you know, you go to the store, you go to Ikea, and you, you pick out a desk lamp. And you kind of take it up to the cashier. And the cashier looks at the desk lamp, and they're like, oh, that's a real bad one. You know, you, you don't want that. You know, that, you know that, that's a bad design. The light's not good. Right? Like, well, what are you going to do? You know, it, it, it's kind of like treating that baby like a consumer product. Because then you, you I mean, parents, they're expecting. And the, the, the doctors, they'll say, oh, no, you don't want this baby. No, no you know, we can't be treating kids like that. And then the third way, I was kind of thinking about this, the third way that the pre-born child is kind of like a consumer product um, is now come the, 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 I, the, kind of the, the research or the development of basically gene editing, the idea of like these designer children. Right? Um, Scott Ray kind of wrote an article about kind of the, kind of the idea of bioethics, and he, he raised this idea that you know, now, you know, Medical technology is looking at how can we remove like defective genes, genes that might cause disease. But on the other hand, there's a slippery slope. Then you can start thinking, okay, you know, I want my child to have blue eyes, and they'll like maybe find the gene for that and say, oh yeah, you know, here's your child, you know, with blue eyes, or I want my child to be you know taller or, or stronger. And then, so the idea of this kind of designer children. Um, and so the way, kind of, that, kind of following along that kind of line of thought, you know, it's like you go, you go to the car dealership and you're picking out like options and packages. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I want the nav system in my car. It's like, you know, I want my child to be smart. I want my child to have blue eyes, you know, blonde hair. Right? 
So that's what the world is thinking. That's how the world kind of treats the preborn child. But how, what is the biblical view? What is the Christian view? And let's turn to Psalm 139. And this is the, the passage that I asked you to email ahead of time for you to consider. And this is a, a great passage. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 16. I'll go ahead and read those um, verses. It says, for, uh, this is David speaking. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So here it's very clear that person, and this, this passage and other passages in, the, in Scripture will say, actually, personhood, um, the fact that you know, somebody becomes a person or a human being begins at conception. You know, here is a great description that you know, David is describing how God is intimately involved. He's actively involved in creating that child in the womb. You know, that, you know, the idea of conception, the development of that baby. It's not just a natural process. It's not chance. It's not natural selection. It's God's handiwork. And it also depicts that God is relating to the preborn child. It says in verse, um, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 15 and, or verse 16, that God has, looks upon the person's unformed substance. That God is intimately involved. He knows that that's a human being. He values that child from the moment of conception, when it's just one cell, two cells, four cells, that God treats those cells as a human being, as a person. And then also the other point that I wanted to make, kind of reading these four verses, is that if you look at the wording, that David makes no description or no distinction between himself after birth and before birth, Because right? he's referring to himself. He's saying, you know, let's, um, verse 13, he says, for you, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb, right? He's saying, he's speaking, you know, he's alive. He's writing the psalm, right? But he's referring to his preborn self as me, I, right? He's not saying, that kid or, you know, this, that baby. He's, he's, there's an equivalence between after birth and before birth. So then how do we respond? That's a lot of words, but let me just kind of quickly go through these. Well, obviously, first we have to defend the biblical views of abortion, that abortion is murder, abortion is infanticide. And we also then have to speak up and, and talk about the, the sacredness of kind of preborn children. And well, how do we do that? Well, well, we support those who are in the position to change laws. Um, you know, so that would be like politicians primarily. Um, and also, I think the other point is then, you know, well, then we do have to speak, you know, when we're interacting or when we're counseling, you know, somebody who may have had an abortion or maybe somebody who's considering an abortion, we have to kind of speak the truth in love and grace. Say, yes, you know, this is what the Bible says about abortion. Right? But 
there is hope, there is forgiveness, you know, in the love of God and the love of Christ. So we do have to balance the idea that, yes, well, abortion is sin, but there is forgiveness. And so the idea of the balancing, the, the truth, but also love and grace. The second response for us, well, is to support resources and alternatives for pregnant women who might be considering abortion. I want to steer them away from that. Say, you know, there are crisis pregnancy centers. Um, we may also, if, it, if possible, maybe helping pregnant women in a financial way. Remember, one of the most common causes for, or reasons for abortion is that they can't afford the baby. Or it's also then, you know, encouraging or supporting the idea of adoption. You know, unfortunately, adoption sometimes has a very negative rap, a negative, uh, very bad you know, reputation. But that shouldn't be the case because that's the alternative. That's kind of a, a, the best option. And then finally is then to proclaim the gospel message. And, and the reason for that is because then how are we going to change our culture? How are we going to change the hearts of those who think of the baby as part of the woman, that think it's okay to kill a child? Right? Well, how do we change those hearts? How do we change our world's culture? And we do that kind of one person at a time you know, by proclaiming the gospel, and hopefully they will come to, to saving faith and understand the biblical view of, of abortion and the preborn children. Second topic, people with special needs. How are, and here I'm referring to those with physical, maybe developmental, intellectual disabilities, people who may be a little bit socially awkward even. Right? So what is the secular view of, of people with special needs? And, and Mike, on Sunday, he, he really kind of... I, summarized it very nicely, and I forget where he was pulling this from. I think it was from like an article or from a website. And he said, you know, actually, kind of the world views people with disability as abnormal, that they're an abnormal part of life in a normal world, right? And that these people are sometimes viewed as a burden to society. They're a hardship on the family, you know, think about kind of the Down syndrome, uh, the kids with Down syndrome. And you know, before they're born, very often there's a, there's a, it's, it's described to the parents in a very negative term. You know, here's all the problems you're going to have. You know, this is, you know, this, this, and this, and this. You know, it's a hardship. It's going to be a challenge. You know, you're going to have to, you know, put in a lot of effort. And in some cases, then, it's, then it goes hand in hand with the idea of abortion. They say, you know what? You know, it's better if that person wasn't even born. Or then this kind of the other kind of part, uh, the other secular view or the worldly view of, of somebody with disability is that somebody made a mistake. You know, then that somebody or that someone could refer to, to God. You know, oh, God made a mistake when, when that person was formed. Or it's the parents. Oh, maybe you didn't eat right. You didn't eat healthy. You didn't take enough vitamins. You drank the tap water. Right? You know, so, you know, so they're trying to place blame. But what's the Christian perspective of people with special needs? And the first um, is that, well, God has ordained all things, you know, including those with disabilities. Right? In Exodus 4, you know, God is speaking to Moses you know, through the burning bush. And God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. And then verse 10, Moses says, oh, 
you know, God, you know, I have never been a good speaker. You know, I haven't been very eloquent in speech. You know, I have a stutter, right? And in verse 11, God responds, and he asks Moses a, a rhetorical question, actually two rhetorical questions. God says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Well, actually, that's three rhetorical questions. All right. So that's Exodus 4, verse 11. You know, God tells Moses, you know, I have made man. I have made man's disabilities. I have caused man to be mute, to be deaf, to be blind, or to be hard of, seeing, hard of sight. Now, I'm also, I also throw in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, the idea that all things were made by God, for God, and through Christ. Right? And so that refers to each person. And then also, the Christian perspective of people with special needs is that each person, you know, including or especially those with disabilities, are made to show God's glory. Uh, Daniel Ritchie uh, was born without arms. Um, and he, de- he describes how he writes and he eats with his feet. Um, and he actually fills up gas in the car with his feet. He actually lies on the ground and he uses his feet to get the, the gas nozzle into the car. Um, and he said, he described how for a long time he had difficulty understanding you know, his difference, that he was born without both arms um, at, at the shoulders. And he, was, he asked, he, he, he was wondering, he's like, how can God love me when he's made me so different. Right? And he came to faith at the age of 15. Um, and he writes how actually God showed him how precious his life was, you know, even despite his disability. And he, and he cites actually John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and I put those there. He, uh, Daniel Ritchie says that verse especially kind of spoke to him and realized actually God does care for him even with his disability. And in those verses, uh, Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're passing a blind man who is blind from birth. And the disciples ask, you know, they kind of go back to that secular view. The disciples ask, you know, Jesus, who sinned? Was it the parents or this man that caused the man to be blind? Right? They're kind of coming from that, that worldly view that oh, somebody sinned. Somebody did something bad for this man to be blind. And Jesus replies, he says, no, it's neither. Jesus says, God ordained his blindness so that God's work, God's glory would be displayed. And then God goes on to heal the man. Uh, So the the idea is that God ordains. God has made everything and that God has ordained disability and that everyone, regardless of ability or disability, is designed to show God's glory. So how do we respond? First, a lot of authors write, we, just, we should just get to know these people. Right? Talk to them. Talk to their families. And it's also for, our parent, uh, for parents. And, uh, you know, as a, as a father of two young kids, you know, I, this, some of these things really kind of spoke to me that you know, we should encourage our children to, to show compassion and to befriend those with disabilities, not stay away from them. Not shun them, but to befriend them, to kind of show God's love, you know, through, you know, kind of daily interactions, speaking to them. And also we can demonstrate selfless love by finding ways to serve them, 
to serve those individuals or to serve their families. So they can be things like providing meals, you know, providing maybe a little bit of kind of respite care, you know, offering to babysit. Or, um, you know, so ways that we can serve the people and their families. And then finally, we should also then look for ways for them to serve in the church to the best of their abilities, obviously. And the idea is that everybody has a unique gift, a, a unique traits. You know, just because somebody has a, a, either a physical disability or an intellectual disability, you know, those people are just as called to make disciples of people, right? The Bible says, oh, you know, make disciples or preach the gospel, you know, if you can, or if you have the mental ability, or if you're kind of perfect, you know, in you know, form. The Bible doesn't say that. It says all people are designed, or all people should make disciples. Right? Daniel Ritchie, he, in, in this article from actually Desiring God, on um, that blog, he, he um, kind of close to his article, he, he writes this, and I think it's very kind of poignant. I think it's very pointed. He says they, referring to people with special needs, they may be even more qualified to proclaim the grace and mercy of God. Affliction has allowed many of them to taste the grace of God in ways few of us can understand. Third area, end-of-life situations. Um, Scott Ray, he, he notes that, you know, unfortunately, this area or this kind of this topic is, is often overlooked or it's underemphasized uh, when we discuss, like, the sanctity of life or, or pastors or seminarians try to avoid it because maybe they don't know how to approach it, they feel uncomfortable, right? Or they may be kind of under, undereducated or kind of unprepared or less prepared, you know, about kind of these topics. Um, so what is the secular view? What is the worldly view when it comes to the, the kind of end-of-life situations? And the, the first is that illness and suffering is bad. It devalues the person. You know, it takes away from that person's dignity. Right? So then, like I said, the pro-euthanasia side, they talk about death with dignity. It's as if, you know, if you're allowed to suffer or allowed to, you know, kind of be ill, that it reduces the dignity or reduces the worth of that person. Right? So they'll also say that there's no purpose to suffering. The, the, you know, that suffering could be physical, could be emotional, could be psychological. So that, you know, it's senseless. Why do you have to suffer? And so that the secular world will say, okay, you know what? Death is the best solution or death is the best answer. Then that leads to the idea of assisted suicide. In, in, um, in certain countries of Europe, specifically the two major ones are the Netherlands and Switzerland. You know, people with just outright just depression. People are just kind of sad, melancholy. Oh, I'm depressed, woe is me. Those people are actually seeking assisted suicide, and they're actually in some ways being encouraged. You know, that, that culture is actually sanctioning it. They're allowing it you know, by law. They're saying, yes, it's okay. Oh, you're, you're depressed? Go, here, here, you know, here, take these pills, kill yourself. That's the secular view because they're saying, you know, there is no point to suffering, to illness. Right? Another way the world views 
um, end of life or views death, at least physical death, is that it's either the answer or it's the enemy. So to the unbeliever or to the secular world, you know, who denies the Christian view or the Christian doctrine of heaven and hell, you know, spiritual life, spiritual death, you know, eternal life, eternal death. To those people, they'll say, okay, physical death is the final end of man. That, you know, in our life, once we die, that's it. There's nothing else. Right? Nothing exists after physical death. Right? So they'll say, you know, death is the answer. It'll put you out of your misery. Right? Your, your suffering that you have in your life. Right? And that leads to the, the death through assisted suicide. On the other hand, some people will say, okay, physical death is the enemy. You know, that being alive is the highest good. It's the best thing in man. Right? So what they'll do is, you know, patients or their families, they'll, they'll try to stay alive for as long as possible and at all costs. Right? Even if, and, and medical technology has gotten to the point where it can do that, where it can take somebody who would otherwise naturally die or pass away, and it can keep them alive for indefinitely in some cases. Um, and so, you know, the idea of life support changes. It's no longer life support, but it's life sustaining. You know, the, you know, the breathing machines, the feeding tubes, you know, and it can delay physical death indefinitely because the value, the highest value, the highest good is just being alive. So that's the idea that physical death is the enemy. But what is the Christian perspective? And the first is that God ordains all matters of life and death. Um, and I put in the two verses. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. Um, God's, um, oh, this is actually the, um, I think this is the song of Moses. And Moses is kind of speaking, you know, um, kind of relaying God's word. Um, and, and he says, it is I, so God, who put to death and give life. I wounded, and it is I who heal. Um, and there in, the, in, in that verse where it says wounded, the Hebrew word, or the sense of the Hebrew word, is to cause injury or to cause bodily harm. Right? So that's the idea of kind of physical injury, physical suffering. It's God who gives that. It's God who gives life, God who takes away life. It's God who causes death. And your Bibles are probably still in um, Psalm 139. And the other point with that is, you know, with the idea that God ordains life and death, is that God knows the length of our lives. Even before, you know, we're even born, even before we're even conceived, God knows our life. And that's in verse 16. He says, you know, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So even before conception, God knew how long we're going to live, right? because that's all, it's in God's hands. Um, uh, Joe Carter, who um, was writing on this blog, and he said the dot talking about, okay, the value of, of kind of people. Um, he said, the dying are still living. And, and dying sometimes we describe it as kind of like a process. It's not a, you know, it's a instantaneous. Sometimes it's a process. So he said, Joe Carter is writing, the dying are still living. 
their inherent worth is not diminished simply because their remoment, remaining moments on earth are few. Right? No, our value is just in and, our, in and of ourselves. It has no, the value, our dignity, is not based on our, our health you know, and how much life we have left. The Christian perspective of kind of end of, that kind of frames end-of-life issues is that physical death is not the final destiny of man. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus describes the future resurrection of believers to eternal life. But on the other hand, he describes the resurrection of the unbelievers. Those who have committed evil, they're going to be res- resurrected to judgment. Right? And I also throw in the, the verses from 2 Corinthians 15, that death is the final enemy, that death is going to be abolished at Christ's return. And since death has been conquered by Christ, that we do not always need to resist it or to avoid it. You know, some, some Christians might say, oh, you know, maybe, you know, if, if I forego life support, if I say, you know, I'm not going to fight this cancer to the end, right? Maybe I'm not showing faith in God. Right? But that's not necessarily true. You know, under the right circumstances, it's okay to say, you know, enough is enough. You know, that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of throwing in the towel, right? It's enough, you know, it's, it's okay. It's not showing lack of faith. It's not showing lack or distrust of God to say, you know what, I'm ready, God, take me home. You know, don't delay my death anymore, or at least my physical death. What is the response? Well, first, encourage and support those who are suffering, you know, who may be kind of facing, you know, the kind of the end of their life, who may have a terminal diagnosis. Um, coming from kind of the palliative care literature, they describe that one of the most common reasons for people to pursue assisted suicide is the loss of independence, the loss of autonomy. That they feel like they're, they're, they're losing their worth, they're losing their value as a person. And so the way we can support those to say, hey, no, you know, encourage them, you know, kind of support them, say, no, you, you're not losing your humanity. You're not losing your value, right? Helping them, you know, finding ways that you can try to maintain their function, you know, if possible, or maintain their abilities as much as possible. The second thing is understand the role of palliative care. You know, unfortunately, you know, with the, the rise in the idea of assisted suicide, palliative care has kind of gotten merged into it and that people are now viewing palliative care as, oh, you're hastening death. You know, palliative care is, you know, encouraging or pushing people to die faster. And that's not the case. You know, palliative care is really providing aid, providing support, you know, maybe relief of any kind of physical suffering. But it's not, you know, to, to hasten death. The third point, and this is kind of a little bit more practical and kind of off to the side, but I think it's really important, you know, as a physician, you know, it's, we want people to, to talk about death, you know, not be afraid, you know, to talk about death. And sometimes it's a cultural thing, or sometimes it's just the, hey, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy, don't need to think about it, or, or it's, you know, but we want people at kind of any stage of life or any age to, you know, we plan for their life. Um, and there's this whole idea of advanced care planning. 
And it's really with advanced care planning is, you know, documenting or putting your wishes, you know, for medical care in writing to say, this is what I want. You know, this is what I don't want. And there, there's studies that have shown that when people do that and when they pass away, their loved ones, families, friends, the, those, the survivors actually have less depression, less anxiety, less stress because they know, you know what? It wasn't us who made the decision. We just followed that person's wishes. Right? So, you know, having very clear instructions, you know. And so it's, we're, we're just kind of, with advanced care planning is, you know, putting it in writing. Uh, Melinda Penner, um, who's the co-founder of this organization that's called Stand to Reason. Um, and it, this organization, actually, I went to their website. It, it's actually, um, their aim or their mission is to train Christians in classic Christian apologetics. So um, Melinda Penner, so she's the co-founder of this organization, she actually had a very severe traumatic brain injury um, in some kind of accident. Um, and it took her a very long time to, to rehab. And even afterwards, she, she actually had a lot of, um, I think, physical um, disabilities, and she, I think she still needed help. Um, and one of the um, blog authors um, took an ex excerpt from um, Melinda's Advanced Healthcare Directive. And so this is a kind of a written document. It carries the weight of law, and it, it kind of lays out, you know, do you want CPR? Do you not want CPR? Do you want your organs donated? Um, and so, this, so Melinda wrote in her advanced healthcare directive this, this paragraph, and, and I'm going to read it to you, and it's kind of long, but I think it nicely captures kind of the Christian perspective of kind of the end of life. And she writes, I wish my life and death to be a testimony of the intrinsic value of all human beings which God has given us by virtue of our creation in his image and of my absolute faith and trust in my salvation through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have absolute confidence that I will be with God in heaven upon my death and anticipate that time joyfully. Very nice kind of summary of the theology, right, of the value of life, kind of life after, eternal life after physical death, right? And also the purpose of our life, to give testimony, you know, to Christ. And she continues, she says, therefore, you know, because of that theology, therefore, my life should not be artificially prolonged. However, neither is my life to be artificially shortened based on a functional or instrumental view of life, right? She says, you know what? I don't want to delay physical death, but on the other hand, I don't want my life shortened because people view me as less functional, less valuable, right? And that's kind of the, that's how, you know, it kind of captures the, the idea of the end of life and the value that we have, the sacredness of human life. I'm going to close with two other situations. Um, and, I, and the first, uh, two, two other situations where the image of God in humanity or in man actually still apply. And then these are kind of a little, not as weighty, not as kind of serious, but I think they're still very applicable and, and in a way practical. And the first is to your own self, to you, to me. You know, sometimes believers, you know, get the wrong impression or, or they, they take to the extreme when we start talking about 
the depravity of man, self-denial, you know, self-surrender, humility. We talk about pride, how pride is bad, right? And they take it to the extreme. And, and Ronald Habermas describes people, he describes two people. Um, one was just driven by guilt because after a sermon um, of like the idea of crucifying yourself, you know, that person was just so ridden with guilt and she's like, oh, you know, I, I can't, you know, I, and she actually, he writes that she actually was trying to use, trying to avoid the word I in conversation. She couldn't say I or I want this because then she was thinking that that's self-centered. You know, she was trying to crucify herself, you know, put anything of herself to, to rest or, you know, kind of deny it in a way. Uh, Habermas writes, Habermas writes of another person who thought godly humi humility meant reminding herself of just her worthlessness, utter worthlessness. So she, as a result, she just stopped using her spiritual gifts. And he actually wrote that he, she actually stopped communicating with her husband. Right? But he says, you know what, actually, we should actually have a healthy love for ourselves. You know, self-denial does not mean thinking lowly of ourselves. It doesn't mean thinking that you're worthless, right? It just means that we have to submit to God's will. Right? Because we have the image of God in ourselves, because our lives are sacred, right, that we have value, we have worth. You know? There may be times in your life, you know, when you question, you know, when you doubt, you know, what is the purpose of your life? What is the path? you know, your life is heading towards. You know, I know I was there, you know, in college. It was a really dark time, really kind of low times for myself, right? Nothing seems to be going right. Or it seems like, oh, maybe, you know, you, have, you've done, you haven't done anything in your life. You haven't achieved anything. You haven't contributed to society, right? That could lead to a sense of worthlessness, you know, doubt, the idea of sanctity of life, sacredness of life. God values you to an infinite degree. You know, just because he created you, you know, that's the evidence of that, of his value of you, just because you are created. Right? Nothing you do or nothing that you do not do will change that fact, just because God created you, that you have that infinite value. Second situation is in the home. And this is kind of for parents or, or future parents. And it, it kind of relates to how we're to raise our children. You know, in today's culture, you know, parents often push their kids to succeed, right? It's as if the parents are living vicariously through their children, you know. And so then we see things like, you know, the, the bribery scandal, you know, the cheating scandals, you know, kind of recently, right? It's, it's as if, the, you know, the parents, you know, gain, like, a, a value or a certain status because of how their children are doing. You know, you hear statements like, oh, you must be a great parent because your kid got into such and such school, right? Or your kid is so smart, you know, you must be great parents, right? But it sends the wrong message to our kids. It tells our kids or the, the culture says, you know what, the worth or the value of your children is based on their achievements, you know, based on what they do or what they can do. Josh McDowell, in his book, um, I think it's um, My Image, or His Image, My Image, 
I think is the title of the book. Um, he suggests kind of three strategies you know, to teaching our kids you know, the truth of the Imago Dei or kind of raising them in that mindset. He says, well, first, kind of build a sense of belonging, that each person, each child is unconditionally loved for who they are. You know, just because they're a, they're a person, you know, that they're loved, right? that unconditional love and acceptance. The second part, the second strategy, he says, is create a sense of worthiness. So once that person knows that they're accepted and that they're valued, that leads to a sense of confidence. Right? It's not this, you know, fake or, or self-boasting, right? It's based on that unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, and the value that God has placed in every single person. And finally, he kind of wraps up, he said, well, you know, provide an atmosphere of, of competence. He uses the word competence. That, you know, there's, that we should have a healthy attitude towards, you know, accomplishment, you know, purpose, right? That, yes, it's okay to achieve, but we have to keep it in perspective, So with that, let's close. Dear God, once again, we just thank you and we praise you because you are the, the creator of all things. You have created each one of us you know, for your purpose and in your image. And you have given us a status of infinite value in your eyes. May we just never forget that in, in, in the low times in our life. Or may we also reflect that in encouraging those who are going through trials, tribulation, illnesses, suffering. We also ask that you give us boldness when we, when we are out in the world and we need to be bold in proclaiming the biblical, biblical views of the sanctity and sacredness of human life and to defend and to to stand up for those who cannot speak for themselves or who are suffering. Just ask that um, you, you give us a healthy reverence, uh, respect, honor, and awe because you are, once again, the absolute God that, have, that has created us, each one of us, and that you have given us infinite value. Just ask that you continue to be with us and encourage us and build us up so that way we can be the light and the salt to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.